0: And we were sitting in the team room waiting as we were fighting for a national championship, waiting for one of the players to come back. And by his body language, he came running back into the room all excited and happy. And he immediately grabbed a set and sat down on the floor and started setting up the pieces. And someone finally said, hey, did you win that game? He said, no, that man taught me a lesson. And he wanted to set the board up and show everybody how he had lost. And I thought, okay, this is a sign of success.
1: Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harsha Jr. And today I bring you Jeff Buelington. Do you feel out of balance in your life, like your family and your work are your priorities, but like you're always shortchanging one or the other? Do you feel like you're going 100 miles an hour every day, getting 100 things done, but you don't feel like you're ever really moving the needle? Or maybe you feel like you want to be more consistent, more focused. Do you want to figure out what the right goals are for you? I know the feeling. I have a wife and four kids, a business, rental property, not to mention the inevitable challenges that pop up in life like cars breaking down or kids getting sick or work getting busy. But when I was a Division I All-American wrestler, I was focused, I was consistent, I knew what my goals were, and I had a plan to get there. But when I got into the real world, things got complex, everything seemed to be a priority. I ended up with a failed business, dead up to my eyeballs, in the worst physical shape of my life, and I knew I wasn't showing up as the husband and father that I should have been. That's when I realized that there was a framework in my life that I used when I was one of the top wrestlers in the country. And I realized that top performing CEOs and Navy SEALs and New York Times bestselling authors, you name it, used the same secret formula to get more done in less time and to maximize their potential and live a life of purpose and impact. If you want to know what that system is and how to apply it to your unique situation in life, I've opened up a few spots on my calendar for free 30-minute clarity calls so that you can learn this system too. Just go to com slash apply. That's com slash apply. If you'd rather me just text you that link, send me a text at this number. I'm going to say this three times. Are you ready? 571-210-5450. Again, that number, 571-210-5450. Send me a text, and I'll text you that link. Again, that's 571 571- I look forward to talking to you. As you listen to this episode, I want you to really think about how the lessons that Jeff is teaching us and that he teaches these students, how it applies directly to you. So who is Jeff Buelington? Jeff grew up on the outskirts of Toledo, Ohio, in rural Indiana. He learned to move the chess pieces from his first grade teacher in 1972, but was introduced to tournament chess by a local farmer, hog farmer, when he was in Indiana as a junior high student. He founded his high school's first chess club, and then now we fast forward a few decades, and he's transforming the lives of students who society has largely written off. And he talks about how these students are just written off and they they write themselves off. So who am I talking about? These students are of Franklin County, Mississippi, and they did a big 60 minutes episode on this several years back. And in that episode of 60 minutes, they described Franklin County as this, quote, the buckle of the Bible belt. There are 7,000 people who live here and no one's in a hurry. There are only two stoplights in the entire county and only one elementary school. And one local there described Franklin County like this. He said, quote, all the statistics, everything you look at, Mississippi is the poorest, it's the dumbest, it's the fattest. We know that the rest of the nation has that conception of us. So why did Jeff Buelington show up here to teach this community a game that most had never even played and presumably wouldn't even have any interest in? And Jeff reveals why. And then How did he succeed? Like, how did he succeed in changing how these young people on the fringes of society think about themselves? And I want you to understand how you think about yourself, right? The the doubt that you have, the fears that you have. How have you written off whatever goals, whatever dreams that you have for yourself? Have you written those off? And we all have to some extent, to some little, little, I don't care what your status is in life right now. There are things that you just think to yourself, well, that's just, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough. I want you to hear how Jeff Buelington transforms the minds of these young people into people who believe in themselves and how you can do this too. This is such a fascinating interview. This is required listening for my children. And- I think for all of my clients, I'm going to make this required listening as well. I really, really enjoy this, and I think you are too. All right, let's get to my interview with Dr. Jeff Buelington of Franklin, Chess. Jeff, why did you go to Franklin County?
0: Well, that's a long story. The, the short, I guess, version of it is that I came here first. I didn't know the place existed, um, actually, until a... Um, a philanthropist from here in Mississippi came up to visit my classroom in Memphis and uh, asked me if I would come consult him about possibly starting a chess program here in Franklin County. And um, while we were here talking about it, he asked me who I thought would, uh, you know, maybe be able to do this kind of work. And I told him that I thought that um, of all the people I could think of, maybe I could do it the best. And, uh, we started talking about the possibility of me coming here.
1: So what was it like? You, you decided to make the jump and, and you went to Franklin County. What was it like in the beginning when you first showed up, maybe that first day or first month, what was it like?
0: It was, um, very much like going back to the small town in Indiana. I lived in when I was uh, a boy from the time I was you know 12 until I graduated from high school. So in many ways it was, uh, A kind of uh, homecoming to me. It was a place that I already understood, although I hadn't lived in a place like this in a very long time. And what was the goal when you got there? Well, my goal was to to come to a place where there was no, you know, real history or culture of um, tournament chess and things of that sort and see how I might uh, given the resources that we were going to put in place here, become sort of a, a liaison between this community and the nodes of chess knowledge, the places where you know where chess is really happening, and start a conversation between here and there that didn't exist before. And that all goes back really to my um, my childhood experiences in in Indiana, where I grew up as a in a, a rural area and was sort of an isolated chess player. I was living in a bean field um, and wanting to play chess, reading about, you know, chess in New York City and so forth. But, you know, it might as well have been a million miles away from me.
1: Yeah. Why? Why Why go to Franklin County? Why take this challenge?
0: Uh, because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, because I think this kind of thing is important. I think there's a lot of, um, as one person said, a lot of uh, wastage uh, in terms of, uh, education in the United States. There are a lot of people who get written off as not being capable of doing something, and it's also for me. It's great fun participating in that kind of thing. Sort of, as some people might say, starting something from scratch or something new, and then you know, creating something that's substantial and real. I, I love that challenge. Did you have doubt
1: when you showed up? Did you have doubt? Were you uncertain about the future of it?
0: Not at all. No. Well, because everything had been lined up for it to work, not only in terms of myself. I mean, I felt like I had a good enough idea of what I was doing that I would succeed at it. But also because of my previous work, when I was uh, negotiating coming here and creating this foundation that would work alongside with the school system, I sort of made a list of everything that hadn't worked well for me before and made sure that those things were in place when I got here. All of the things that had encumbered me in one way or another, tried to sort of eliminate those. And it, that, you know, th- that sort of thing really boosts your confidence when it comes to undertaking a project like this. So your prior failures and setbacks prepared you for this? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it, the, the story of failure to me is an important one because when I listen to you talk about failure and I think about kids, younger kids... I think sometimes when you use the word failure, you also mean something like awakenings or, you know, birth pangs or growth. You know, I think about a, a baby. I was talking to my students about it the other day. We watched your TED Talk uh, and I asked them, I said, how many of you have, of you have been around a little kid before? Because there was a picture of one of your children was very young in that picture, right? And I said, have you ever been around a little kid that's learning how to walk? And they said, well, they all had. it." I said, have you ever seen them fall down when they're walking? And they were like, of course. And I said, did you ever hear anybody say, oh, no, my baby fell. It'll never walk. Right. And of course, that's not true. What do you see when when a baby falls? What do you see? You also see the baby getting up again. And oftentimes with a smile on their face and you can see the baby developing its muscles, all of that falling down is part of being able to get back up. And so, you know, failure uh, is um, essential as long as failure doesn't turn into some kind of a a dead end or a cul-de-sac danger. uh, There can be a real danger in failure. It has to be handled properly, especially when you're working with children. But on the other hand, it's necessary and it's powerful and it's, it's wonderful if you know what to do with it.
1: Handled properly. You know, that, that's, I want to explore that for a second because we all fail and, you know, we failed as children learning how to walk. We failed as children learning how to ride a bicycle. Uh, We grow up and we continue to fail along the way, but I think most people don't handle it. Properly or not as properly as they could, they look at it as a reason that they can't succeed, a reason that they can't do something.
0: Right, Because it fills them with anxiety. and they're not they're not able to envision themselves succeeding. And so instead what they do is think of failure as a kind of fate. when instead, what you would want them to do is think of failure as an indication of where things stand. But also as a, you know an arrow pointing to where they might be, so having someone around that helps guide, particularly a child, through that very difficult phase is important. It also turns out I think that when you're coaching children, that you also have to help the parents understand that as well, because the parents always want you know what's best for their kids, and um, they want they, it's hard to watch a child fail. It takes strength right. to do that and parents need to be encouraged to allow that to happen. When I was a kid growing up in Indiana, I'd already learned how to play chess back in Indiana. I mean, in in Ohio, Uh, I moved to Indiana from Ohio when I was 12. There was a a farmer there with whom I started playing chess. He stood up in church one day and said, "Um, looks like a great day for a game of chess, which I thought was um, both a strange thing to say in church and an invitation to uh, go beat him at chess. Cause I thought of myself as being extremely good at it, <laughs> but just because I didn't know any better. And so I went, we went home, had lunch and I went, then I went to his house and uh, I had already sort of pictured in my head, this game plan of how I was going to beat him. And within, uh, you know, two moves, the whole thing had been flipped and <laughs> four moves in, I was dead lost and I was embarrassed and ashamed of myself, I think. But I was also, at the same time, turned on and awakened to the idea that there was more to chess than I had realized up to that point. Right there's some. There was. It was like running into a, uh, you know, running into a brick wall or something. Playing this guy, he just knew so much more than I didn't. Saw so much more than I saw. So my response was um, kind of disbelief. You know, how, how did he do this to me? I didn't like it. It was uh, disturbing, and it made me want to play him again. And so I did um, probably, my guess is, uh, I, I, have, I don't have exact records of this, but my guess is I probably lost somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 straight games to him over the course <laughs> of my learning. And he, he was a very sweet person who rooted for me. He wanted me to win, and he would loan me books and uh, things for me to read, and I would go home and prepare and study in ways that I would never do for school because I was so much more motivated by chess and by beating Mr. Raver. And um, I later, he, he, his desire for me to win uh, against him was so great, in fact, that he, I later found out that he'd let me win, which disturbed me quite a lot because I thought, oh, no, that it wasn't legitimate, right? I, he just gave me one because he felt sorry for me. And as a teacher, now I think about that sort of thing, how it is that you want to balance the idea of having your student feel that the task that you're setting in front of them is doable, right? Because you don't want to kill their, um, their esteem or their hope in doing it. But on the other hand, there's also the part of them developing a realistic understanding of how good they are and developing the kind of resilience it takes to bounce back from losses. So you have to balance those things. Now, eventually, um, um, my, my chess skill simply surpassed his after a while and the, the relationship flipped. Um, but then what happened to me is interesting. This is a different kind of failure and it's a problematic one i was in a um i was in an isolated area in which i became the strongest player and that led to a very frustrating plateau right because there was no one around to beat me anymore and if i can't lose games i can't get better so in some ways it stalled me out right i was in this big rush to beat mr raver and eventually you know, within i don't know six months or so i could do that but then it was a whole different was a whole different thing because what you really need, and one of the things that I came here to, to, to do, knowing I needed to do, is you need to create opportunities for your students to lose certain kinds of games or to at least risk losing certain kinds of games. So that at some point in a place like here, like Meadville, for the best players, to get better they have to play people who can beat them which means they have to play somewhere outside of where we live we have to travel to other places maybe outside of the state that sort of thing but it's creating opportunities for meaningful losses i think that that a good coach is always looking for not places to rack up you know mountains of trophies and things like that although those those can be short-term motivators and so forth but what really matters are opportunities to lose really tough games and also to win them as well, right? Winning is also extremely important, but those losses, there's nothing like them because losses tell you that whatever it is that you think um, you have figured out isn't quite right. There's some other thing that you haven't done yet. There's some other part of your game that has to be developed. And so losing like that, it's one of my, it's one of my top priorities as a, as a teacher. And also, and, and, and having students take losses in ways that are helpful because otherwise losing leads to quitting, right? Uh, failure leads to quitting and you don't want that. And so you have to, especially with, I guess with, with children, you have to protect them in some ways from excessive losing. On the other hand, they have to do it. Mm. And those
1: children become
0: grownups. And
1: those grownups are listening right now and they're dealing with their own failures. And you mentioned your, your farmer friend, Mr. Raver, Mr. Raver, you said he was a sweet person and he was rooting for you. And I don't know that we're always the sweet person that we need ourselves to be. (laughs) You know, we might be rooting for ourselves, but the language is coming out like, see, you're not I told you you're not good enough. See I, I told you you're not smart enough. See I told you you don't have what it takes to get that promotion, to start that business, to write that book, to run that marathon, to to whatever it is. Is it important to have that person outside of you? I mean, is that that's the role that I think that you play. You're challenging these kids. You're challenging them to to you know, you're creating opportunities for them to lose, but you're You're that voice that is saying, well, yes, you lost, but you can, you can win if you do it this way, or you can improve if you do it this way.
0: Well, and one of the things I think that a good coach fosters is a community that does it so that the coach isn't the only voice saying it anymore. There needs to be a real, an atmosphere in which the older children model losing for the younger children so that they're also teaching the idea that I lost and here's what I do with a loss. Here's what here's what a loss tells me about myself. And even allow themselves to say, okay, sometimes when I lose I I don't handle it as well as I'd like to. And sometimes, of course, in a chess tournament, you know, like a, a wrestling tournament, same kind of thing, you have to be able to bounce back from losses because there's another game, there's another round coming just around the corner and if your losses take you so low that you can't perform in the next round you're basically almost dooming yourself in that sense right you have to be able to learn how to put those kinds of take put tough losses out of your mind for the moment and go do whatever it is that needs to be done and then maybe later go back and reflect deeply on the loss but sometimes the loss has to be sort of you know put away for the moment and older kids are really good at teaching younger kids to do that. And so one of the things that I try to do here is not be the, um, not be the only voice that's putting that message across, but rather create a situation in which um, it's normalized throughout the community that when somebody loses, like uh, for example, we have, you can see behind me these demonstration boards when we go over our games, we go over our games publicly. And usually we go over our losses publicly. So everybody sees that everybody loses because there'll be kids who will, you know, come in here naively think seeing, you know, they'll see there's a kind of pecking order of playing strength. And you don't want the, the little one walking in here and thinking that the, the strongest player is Superman and that everything in his life is perfect because, that kid's losses are going to be compounded in a negative way. But if they see you going over a loss of one of the top players and that top player being, um, you know, saying, you know, what they see, uh, in a, in a positive light about their loss, it's a whole different atmosphere. So it's not based on shame of losing, but rather, um, the kinds of gains and awakenings that, can be uh, brought about by losing. That's really, I think, where it's at. I
1: want to talk to the listeners for a moment, Jeff, because everything you're saying, I'm translating this from students to the listeners, right? Chess players to people trying to raise their own kids, trying to parent, trying to teach, trying to coach, trying to build their business. Like We don't see... The failures. There's not too many people out there on social media sharing their failures, breaking down their failures and their setbacks. All we see are the successes, and that's what that's what this podcast is all about. That's what my coaching is all about: is pulling back the curtain and re- revealing that that failure is normal for the strongest players on your chess team. Failure is normal, and, and for the listener. Those, those people you see driving down your street with the car that you want they have the house that you want they they have other things that you're you're envious of when you see them posting on social media they have their own fears they have their own failures they have their own doubts they have their own setbacks and i want you to recognize and and not settle for less not lower your goals not feel like you don't you're not good enough or smart enough or capable enough because of your failures you were more capable because of your failures if if you create this, and my my clients know what this is, this this environment of excellence around you, of people who, you know, it's not just the coach telling you and, and coaching you, but it's the others around you who are supporting you and, and lifting you up and 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 helping you through your failures. That is so critical to have that environment. I mean, have you seen that, Jeff? Like that that environment of students who you that you've you've created and cultivated that they, I imagine there's encouragement. I don't by any stretch imagine it's it's all rainbows and fairy tales, but I, I imagine it's a, an environment where there's support and encouragement.
0: Yes, there is. There's also rivalry at the same time, right? Those, and those things go hand in hand with each other. It's not as if you say it's, it's not all rainbows, but I was thinking about in a situation where we were at a national championship. This was with a team out of Memphis. And we were sitting in the team room waiting because we were fighting for a national championship and waiting for one of the players to come back. And by his body language, he came running back into the room all excited and happy. And he immediately grabbed a set and sat down on the floor and started setting up the pieces. And someone finally said, Hey, did you win that game? He said, no, that man taught me a lesson. And he wanted to set the board up and show everybody how he had lost. And I thought, okay, this is a sign of success, right? (laughs) This is amazing, right? That this kid is happy, not about losing, but happy about the lesson. And, you know, he really... And and the rest of the team got around it. They're like everybody was okay. We all just got stronger from this, mm-hmm. right? Your strong, your your loss just made us all stronger. And if we can have that attitude as a team, or as a community, or as a culture, my goodness, um, there's so much, um, there's so much lost to shame and other um, reasons for giving up, right? Rather than saying. Let's circle the wagons around this thing and figure it out together because that's where improvement comes from.
1: Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to com slash action. That's com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now, back to the show. I want to circle back to something you said earlier. You said there's so much wastage in education. So many people are written off.
0: That's right. Labeled in kindergarten. Well, I think that there are um, there are all kinds of ways in which that can happen. There are all kinds of preconceived notions about who is smart or even what being smart means. And that what I try to do with chess, of because I mean chess is a – chess is an interesting thing in in several ways i mean a person could be completely illiterate and still be a very very good chess player so that the kinds of ways in which we might recognize a kid as being advanced in school in terms of their reading skills and so forth uh, might disguise in some way or another other kinds of ways that kids have of knowing and doing things and things about their character and their their grittiness all of those kinds of things and so with chess, I try, and I, and I talk to teachers about this all the time, don't try to guess who the chess players are going to be. Don't get confused. Don't confuse the straight-A student with the chess player because they may not be the same person. They might be too. It's, it's possible they are, but just don't think about it like that. Let's just play and see what happens. Let's see who shows what. I mean, there are all of these hidden qualities in children that can be silenced by, you know, again, preconceived notions of authority figures about who's who's who and what's what. When I learned how to play chess as a first grader, I was taught to play the moves, how to play the moves as a first grader, I believe uh, that only boys were taught how, and that all the boys that were taught were in the highest reading group. And so when I think back on my own experiences it, at first learning chess and the ways in which I was taught that there were these kids who were smart, who had some kind of natural talent, whatever that might mean, um, and the ways in which those things hurt me because I, I, I missed out on opportunities to play chess with a whole bunch of other people who might have been extraordinary at it, right? Uh, but I, I didn't know that, and it was it was meeting Mr. Raver and losing to him, right? I was losing to to a guy who was losing to a hog farmer, really was a you know a bubble popper for me, and it was it was well, it has to be one of the greatest days of my life that I would lost that game because it changed everything. It, and it also gave me a deeper sense of how much I could love chess. You know, up until then I thought it was tic tac toe. I thought I'd figured it all out, and uh, playing him a few times, I realized no, you don't know anything. And and what a good feeling that can be. Right? It's, it sort of sets you free from getting stuck in this static approach to a to whatever endeavor you're engaged in, whether it's chess or something more you know adult related to uh, one's career or, or anything like that.
1: How do you get your students to believe? How do you get poor public school students to believe that they can beat students from rich private schools, who look the part, and this is a game that you would associate more with the the rich private school, right? And h- how do you get your students to believe?
0: I suppose in my own my own contribution to that starts with the fact that I do believe in the positive. I believe that most people are smart enough to become quite good at it. So where you were born doesn't really determine that, in my mind. I have this sense that it's more about work and training and the kind of feedback, the quality of the feedback loop that the student gets. That's what's going to determine how far they get, right? More than any other thing. And so I suspect that I pass that sense on to them. It's not some... I'm not, um, I'm not uh, Mr. Raver cheerleading for my students in that sense. I'm something. I'm, my approach is a little different than that. I have, I have reasons to believe that they can go very far, and I've seen it happen, and I expect to see it happen again. And I suppose that that at least partly has something to do with it. But then the other side of it is, is you have to show them. They have to see it themselves. And it's not like you take them and show them, but rather you create opportunities for them to prove it to themselves over time, for them to develop a sense of their own power and strength. When I, The first time I ever started a chess program was in Indiana. It was right after my son was born. And it was then that I decided that I wasn't going to become a philosophy professor, but instead I was going to, be a, I was going to become a chess teacher. And I was in a, back up in the town I grew up in, which is primarily either farmers or, or factory workers. And that first year, that group of kids qualified to go to the state championship. And I can remember uh, having supper and when they uh, with the parents in Terre Haute It was where the tournament was held. And I can remember the parents saying things like, I never thought a kid of mine would be a chess player of this quality right? Because the school had told them their whole lives, you're not, you know, get used to it. You're not going to be one of the stars. You're going to wind up in a factory or you're going to wind up as a waitress or something along those lines. But their children's experience sort of gave them a sense that maybe that wasn't true. And I think, so it's not just about convincing kids, but also parents. And oftentimes in parents, I find Somewhere deep inside of them, there's this little uh, tinderbox of of excitement and enthusiasm and hope that's just waiting to get ignited. And seeing your child succeed at something that you maybe thought you couldn't do because of messages you received from school or some other place, it can be be a life-changing thing.
1: You have these students who are going into a big competition state level national level mm-hmm. and there's a lot of performance anxiety that I imagine shows up just like a wrestling yeah. match just like you know making a big yeah. sales call whatever the scenario there there's this there's this pressure that we feel like we have to win I sense that it, it's maybe somewhat baked into your coaching philosophy and your coaching style and your personality too but but do you focus on the process and not the outcome like how do you help them deal with the nerves that come from the pressure to win?
0: Well, those are, real, those are real problems for a coach or a teacher to face. And different children, of course, come from different families. And so you have a, a variety of, of dispositions already You know, within, within a team. There are some kids who feel a great deal of pressure to win. And there are others and there there are those particularly those who've been told um that they're um smart or gifted or something like that that sort of have this sense that they have to win they're just supposed to win everything they're the ones that i worry about the most because Hmm. they're the ones who've probably experienced losing the least at least academically and so forth and they're the ones who are the most prone to quitting the other kids like the babies who have to get up over and over and over and over again, they're more likely to take it in stride and to put it in put it in its place. But with other kids, it a lot a lot has to happen, um, and there is a kind of there's a period uh, in the development of a chess program in which it would be um, unrealistic not to expect a certain amount of tears to be shed, because those are hard experiences. Those are very hard experiences, especially the ones who are invested in, you know, not only in playing chess, but who are invested in an identity of themselves as something called a winner, right? As in like, I win at whatever I do kind of thing. And that that identity is a really hard one to keep up in a real world with other people who are fighting tooth and nail against you and who are just as capable as you are, right? It's an unrealistic expectation. And on the other hand, what maybe has to happen is is that kids need to redefine what counts as success on some level so that they stay in the game rather than, you know, abandoning it as impossible or not theirs or something like that.
1: Why do you think this has been successful? Like, I should say, how do you you define success? Like, this has been a successful program. Like, was there a moment where you can go back to and you can say ah it's working
0: the very first day I was here the first day I came here as a consultant I felt ah it's working (laughs) because I had a I have this um sort of introductory lesson I like to teach and what I'm looking for is a sense of the children being captivated by the logic and competition and sort of uh, aesthetic beauty of the game. And when I look around the room, the first time I was here, I saw the kids getting it and I saw them invested in trying to figure out what was going on. And I could see the teachers uh, or the principals that were watching me do this. I could see them getting it. I could see wheels turning and them, them making the kinds of connections you want to make. I always, uh, always like to say that an ounce of demonstration is worth a pound of emails or, or something like <laughs> that, right? that showing somebody how something is done is so much more powerful than talking about it or, um, or just, I'm saying just telling them about it or sending them a stack of, of uh, academic research that proves that chess does X, Y, or Z. I'd rather just be in their presence and show them and then they yeah we we want to do more of this how do we do more of this and and when they're captivated by an interest in the thing then they're going to get they're going to become good at it because they want to not because somebody's telling them they should or that it leads to some other thing but because in itself it appeals to them and they want to be good at it
1: jeff we've talked about the students and the value of failure in their experience in the value of failure to help them grow as chess players but also as people uh, we talked about you a little mm-hmm. bit and and you knew this was going to be a success from the go and and right right from the beginning has there been a time when you failed a time when you failed and as a result maybe you felt the the self-doubt that comes from that and how you were able to overcome it
0: well i'm I have an abundance of it of <laughs> failure I can tell you about. I'm sure there are times I mean, as a teacher, when you have to um, you you have to keep an eye on yourself, right, and the ways in which you're pushing kids and i um, or the ways in which you're not pushing kids or the kinds of um, ways in which you might invite somebody even unintentionally to think of themselves as not really belonging and what i the the way in which i would describe this particular failure came about as a realization of, of something that happened that I you know i hadn't let myself expect when when i was in memphis our one of our one of our schools these schools the, the two schools i worked at at the time were among the the lowest scoring schools in the state of tennessee And one of them was taken over and turned into a charter school. And so I left and went to another school and some of the kids followed me. Most of them were girls. And we got to the new school and there were boys there. uh, Oh, there's a chess class. They wanted to take it. And they were sort of bragging about how good they were and how no one could beat them. And I sent one of the girls, her name was um, Tyranny. I sent Tyranny quietly over to play him because she Those girls had finished second in the nation the previous year, and these guys had no idea who they were dealing with. And so Tyranny went over and beat beat this kid severely in (laughs) front of everybody. And he yelled out, Where'd you find her? And then he said, You know, I want her on my team. And I thought about that, you know, what this kid had said, and how long prior to that in my life until I had the experience of working with girls in those ways, going back to the circumstances under which I had learned chess, that I had uh, failed, failed for decades of my life by underestimating certain people for reasons that don't hold any water. So, you know, and I'm always finding those kinds of things, little biases I have in myself that in some way or another, get in the way of somebody else becoming what they might be. And I have to, you know, you have to really check yourself in those ways. And it's wonderful to be around children, people who prove you wrong over and over again and not wrong in like some way that you're like openly making a a declaration about something, but rather just posing a problem saying, you know, why did you ever, why did you not think this way in the first place, right? And so I don't know. I I, I suppose that my, my work as a teacher is one in which I've learned to appreciate those kinds of shocks from the blue where I find out that I'm wrong, that I appreciate those things and that I appreciate especially being around people who point those things out to me. Because otherwise, you know, otherwise you end up getting sort of stuck in a hardened shell and you don't become particularly uh, good at growing. And so, um, you know, I'm just very thankful that I've been in situations where people have set me straight like like those girls did. And like that, like they did that boy, too. I could see a lot of myself in him. I thought, boy, when I was his age, I would have acted the same way
1: for the listeners, I want you to recognize these own failures that you have, these own biases that you have about others and about yourself. And I want you to challenge those. Always be looking out to challenge those. Jeff, absolutely fascinating conversation. I could talk to you for hours. I appreciate you making time to come on the show. Oh,
0: it's my pleasure.
1: All right, I wanted to record a quick addendum to the episode because uh, Dr. Billington mentioned that Bobby Poole, who was a real asset to the program, recently passed away. So Dr. Billington, Jeff, uh, Bobby Poole passed away. He was a critical piece, a critical element for you as a teacher, but also for the students as learners. Tell us about him.
0: Yeah, he, yeah, I think he's a a symbol of of what we need a lot more of in uh certainly in in, in chess education for for beginners and such. Bobby was my um was my next-door neighbor and he and I um that's how we met and he I wound up hiring him after he attended several of our public library classes. He showed up regularly, showed a lot of interest in chess and was always trying to help other people in the class figure out what was going on. And as uh, he became part of the chess program, he took on um, a very special and difficult work role, uh, which was fostering the um, the skills of the, the beginner level players and by serving as a kind of uh, benchmark for them as to how good they were so that... He uh, put himself on the line and started, uh, you know, competing with the kids and they, he had a, they had a target on his back. Everybody wanted to beat Mr. Pool. We also had, um, we used um, an online uh, chess website, which allows you to solve tactics problems. And the kids would try to, um, they were all pushing each other to see who could have the highest tactics score. And Bobby would be on there with him and say, and at the same time would be sending me texts saying, Don't these kids ever go to sleep? That sort of thing. Cause he, he didn't want to go to bed, letting them have a higher number than he achieved. So he would stay up as late as he could, trying to, um, you know, stay ahead of them. And uh, likewise, uh, for the kids, it, it created a, a sense of empowerment to the kids to be able to engage an adult in that way, an adult who was willing, uh, brave enough to lose in front of kids without, you know, taking the usual or, or I shouldn't say the usual, but a common adult way out when they lose to kids is to sort of laugh it off. Like they weren't really trying or I'm really not that good at it anyway, but taking it seriously and losing, that's a different thing. And so he modeled on a daily basis, If not losing, he modeled the importance of risking losing. And uh, in that way, um, he was uh, essential to our program um, because uh, the kids needed to encounter somebody, uh, particularly an adult, who was a challenge to them and who was at least at first stronger than they were, but who was... um, willing to have a group of kids sit around and watch him perhaps lose to a first grader while he was doing his best. And so he would, you know, he would say things to me, like, why do they play like Bobby Fisher when they play me? But when they play each other, they drop pieces all the time. And I would say, because playing you is of a higher, um, of higher importance to them right now, at least. And you bring out the best in them. I mean, unfortunately for you, you bring out the best in them. You as a player who's trying to beat them, that's unfortunate for you. But on the other hand, as a coach, you've got to see this as just pure gold. You're bringing out the best in kids who might give up if they were playing a stronger adult player. But when they're playing against you and think, hey, there's a shot here. I'm going to do, do all I can. Then you're really bringing something out uh, in the kid that... Um, That's going to help them develop as a player.
1: And for the listener, I want you to think about who in your life plays the role of Bobby Poole and the appreciation that you should have for, for that person in that role. But also think about how can you play the role of Bobby Poole? In somebody else's life like how can you play that role how can you be that asset to somebody else be willing to lose be willing to learn start with the beginner's mind and encourage others and bring people along and play that critical role don't forget about what i talked about before the interview if you want to find balance clarity and focus take the next step and go to jimharshawjr.com slash apply. Space on my calendar is very limited, so claim your spot now, com slash apply, or just send me a text message to 571-210-5450. Again, that's 571-210-5450. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, Let's Talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshajr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly